everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman. Hope you got a chance to listen to the episode from last week, conversation with Dr. Josh Mobley from Baylor University, professor of great texts. Uh, it was a fun one to uh, be party to and then to do the editing on and getting to go back and listen through the content again. Just so enriching, I think, uh, as we delve into church history and we've we've kind of dipped our toes in those waters here over the last 12 months or so. And I'm just always encouraged to go back and to find out what other great minds and hearts have wrestled through over the centuries. And, and uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and we have so much to glean from those who've gone before us. And so if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to the episode uh, last week on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it was a very uplifting conversation. And today we're going to do a, a topic or an episode titled Dialogue Partners. And if you've been a listener of this podcast, uh, kind of sore of this podcast for any length of time, you know that we talk a lot about dialogue, even some of our first episodes right off the bat uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, that's hard to believe. End of 2020, I know, right? It's yeah. so wild. It is wild. Um, then you'll know that we've, we've talked about this uh, in different contexts before, but going to devote an entire podcast to, uh, to this content, Dialogue Partners. And so as always, Drew, once you get us kicked off, let us know where we're going today. One thing we've talked a lot about is looking at life and understanding that we're shaped by other people. That actually goes back to our very first episode, um, lines out a lot of this. And you know, within that, uh, when we think about having ideas or beliefs or anything else, you know, there's this myth that I can, on my own, just kind of in this very uh, radically individualistic way, come up with something. When in reality, the way that we form our beliefs and our ideas is through being in dialogue with other people. And I think that's something that I'll say for myself, I haven't thought a lot about in life, where I might be wrestling with concepts, but I'm not necessarily always thinking, whom am I in dialogue with as I'm forming this? And that could be both those that I am critiquing. And so actually, a lot of times my ideas are shaped because I'm disagreeing with somebody. So even though I'm disagreeing with them, I'm still being shaped by their beliefs in forming my own rebuttals. Um, it also could be those I do agree with, you know, where we might be refining one another. Either way, it's the dialogue is the means by which my own thoughts are shaped. And so even, the, even as we talk about, you know, kind of the, the culture that we create as we seek to, to navigate what it means to be a Christ follower, I, I think it's important sometimes to take a step back and ask the question, who am I in dialogue with as I grapple with implications of culture? I got a lot of this where what really, maybe about a year ago, um, provoked me was Gustavo Gutierrez, who's the father of liberation theology, and we've devoted a few episodes to this topic. He has this quote in describing his methodology, and what he says is that he seeks to have the poor and non-persons, by which he means people who are marginalized, for his dialogue partners. And he's very explicit. He doesn't want the Western Academy or the rich or, you know, whatever other group out there to be the primary people that he's talking with as he formulates theology, but instead, following the words of Jesus and the example of Jesus, he wants to go to the poor, people that are living on the margins, people that are overlooked, and he wants to be in dialogue with them as he develops his own theology. 
And, you know, as I, as I think about that, I think that's a very powerful thought to me. And so even though I've critiqued liberation theology actually precisely on this point, because I don't know, I don't, I don't think these days at least that the poor really necessarily represent the main dialogue partners of liberation theology in many cases. I think, um, as, as several um, people have noted, that liberation theology is a theology for the poor. So it's predominantly people within the Western Academy advocating for the poor, which charitably, I think I'm thankful for that mindset, but I think it largely represents still the concerns of the academy, just for my own Pentecostal plug. Uh, If you contrast that to the growth of Pentecostalism worldwide, it's truly a theology of the poor. Um, Rather than being one for them, um, it's a theology of them. So I, you know, I think that would be a critique maybe of liberation theology. But despite that, despite maybe places where I might disagree, the concept here, the methodology here, I, I believe is very much worth considering. So following Gutierrez, uh, that's my question. Who are our dialogue partners and have we ever paused to consider? Yeah, that, that's great. And, you know, again, we've, I don't want to sound like a broken record. You can go back and listen to some of our thoughts on this topic before, but I know from my own just personal development, we talk about spiritual formation and, and leadership development. This has been such a crucial piece of the puzzle, and I, several years ago, uh, part of that uh, story of doing that TED TEDx talk in Lawrence, and I think we've inserted some thoughts on that experience in previous episodes, but realizing the need to get outside of myself, and we were pastoring a church at the time, and uh, in a very, you know, coming from the South and having kind of grown up spiritually in Waco, now in a, you know, still a red state, but a blue city in Lawrence, Kansas, and coming across people with very different you know, viewpoints on social issues or politics or certainly intellectual issues coming out of uh, KU. And, and when I did that TED uh, experience, interfacing with a bunch of PhDs, um, you know, atheists, and realizing that I have very underformed uh, convictions. I, I have deep convictions, but my ability to articulate the reasons why we're very underformed. And so I found myself just getting into dialogues with people who are very different from me. And I, it was such an enriching experience. I think there was a very acute period of time for about two years. I was having some of them were unlooked for uh, that were coming to me and at me, pastoring a church uh, during that time, some of what was going on in, uh, in politics and everything else. But uh, it was such a formative time. And I think it really shaped here these last six years, now intentionally going out and trying to find people of various viewpoints to uh, not just to, you know, sharpen my own axe, but to really grow in empathy and grow in, in a deeper understanding. And I find that as I've expanded, you know, I had 10 years of only almost exclusively reading the scriptures and Christian literature in my late teens, early 20s. And I needed that. I needed that kind of rewiring. But with that biblical framework now, with a biblical worldview, I find that uh, interfacing with people of very different backgrounds and different viewpoints has actually only served to deepen my convictions, even if it's broadened them in different senses. So I think this is a huge topic and is a deeply formative one for us as believers. Yeah, and I love that you bring that up, Mick, because there's a temptation that we all have to get into a rut where we get stuck in the same group the whole time, you know, and there's a lot of talk about this these days about how social media really exacerbates this, where we form these bubbles, and it's really hard to get outside of them. And that can be on an individual level, but I think it actually can happen on a much broader level, uh, church-wide, um, you know, where, where you start to have these ways of, of doing dialogue where it's always with the same people. And so you might have this, this very developed conversation, but it's also pretty narrow because you're stuck within one group. And to your story, it's actually when you start breaking outside of that, you're forced to grapple with different questions, and I found that to be really enriching as well. 
as I'm forced to go back to the Word of God and confront things that maybe I haven't seen before or developed before. But the point of today is to, to challenge us, are we aware of where we are in dialogue, where we aren't, and the limitations of it? So let, let me use an example here in case you're having a hard time tracking with this. If, you know, we have this podcast, we've been doing it for a while, and if we were to invite a third member to join the podcast, and especially if that person represented a different way of thinking, it would fundamentally change the podcast. It could be for the better, could be for the worse, you know, it all depends. But let's, uh, let me use an example of, um, let's say we invited a conservative Catholic, or maybe even a charismatic Catholic, to join us. And, you know, I read a lot of Catholic theologians and in my own study, that that's definitely a place that I go to consistently just to, to learn from, even though there's places where I might critique. It's also been a really enriching place for me of, of development and study. But if we had somebody join and they represented a third person on this podcast, it would fundamentally alter the conversation because this person would represent the viewpoint of their community. And then you and I, Mick, who are part of the same church community, would start being in dialogue with them. And so what we would be doing is both finding places of agreement where we're looking at you know, ideas where we would all agree, maybe, um, maybe a, an understanding of a sacramental worldview of the presence of God in all creation and what it means to participate in that, um, even some of what we talked about last week. Um, we also might find points where we disagree, you know, of exactly how those sacraments are expressed in the life of the church, or maybe how the church reflects Christ in its formal hierarchy, or, you know, things like that. And so we'd have both points of agreement, points of disagreement, but the broader perspective here is the entire conversation would change because we've added a dialogue partner representing a community. Now flip that, let's say same exact scenario, but we invited somebody on who was a progressive Christian. And, you know, there'd, there'd be a lot more disagreement, you know, whereas I think we'd have a lot more common ground with a charismatic Catholic, with a progressive Christian, there, there still would be some common ground, but maybe some more disagreement. But once again, it would really change the way that we talk. So even in our disagreement, it would change the, the way that we do dialogue, you know? And then to, to Gutierrez's point, what if we brought in somebody who represented, you know, was living in a housing project or somebody who represented the Indian church or the, the Brazilian church and, and dwelling in, sl- in slums, doing ministry there, we brought them on as a dialogue partner. The concerns that they would raise would be fundamentally different than the concerns a progressive Christian would raise than uh, maybe another middle-class charismatic Catholic who's educated similarly to us. Like all of these different people would alter the conversation, the concerns that we have, the way that we read scripture, all of it. Even even in our sharp disagreements, it would still change the way that we talk. That's great, Drew. So, you know, we're talking about that kind of on a podcast level, on a personal level, my own, you know, anecdotal stories. And and by the way, as an aside, I would love a, a podcast with a like a diehard Marxist. I think that'd be <laughs> I think that'd be a lot of fun to find the points of overlap and then to model how to disagree. Yeah, people we just disagree with. On so many levels, that would actually be a yeah, that would be a blast. I would have a blast. And we've had a, a listener reach out and ask for Drew and I to do an episode on a topic that we disagree on. So Kenneth, we we hear you, and uh, we have yet to kind of put our heads together and see exactly what would that point of disagreement be. Uh, but that'd be a fun episode for the future too. But yeah, but Drew, how how does this extrapolate this out to maybe a broader level when you think of kind of the the broader life of the church? What would be some thoughts there? My my larger concern with this on a, on a maybe macro level is. When I look at a lot of um, maybe more academic discussion about Christianity, and so if I'm going to isolate it, you know, maybe out of the realm of everyday life, but where people start wrestling with deeper level issues, what I'm noticing is, is a trend is that that conversation is largely shaped 
by Western Secular Academy. And it's the university system, and, and a lot of it is the humanities. And so you see, whether it's um, contemporary philosophy, um, some of the postmodern material around language, getting into uh, different identity groupings and, and things like that, have a profound influence on any kind of intellectual dialogue. And so what I watch happen is a lot of Christian academics, what they end up doing is they, they end up, whether it's their critique or their points of agreement, they have allowed themselves to embrace a primary dialogue with the Western Academy. Now, I want to pause and say that that in and of itself is not a bad thing. And so I think for some that that is actually a high calling. And, you know, that's a lot of what this podcast is. So if you wanted to critique us, we're certainly doing that in a lot of ways ourselves. And so it's not to say that that is altogether a bad thing. But I also think it's something we need to be aware of because that's a pretty small group. It's influential in the Western world, but when you think of the global church, I mean, that's a, that's a minority of a minority of Christians around the world today. And the concerns of people that are highly educated living in the Western world are just flat out different than the concerns of the majority of believers, even here in the United States, that are wrestling with the realities of their daily life or certainly coming from an altogether different cultural tradition like the church in Latin America or the church in Africa or places like that. And what I've seen happen is that the academy, it sure seems as though that that conversation has grown pretty insulated and ends up becoming a, a significant bubble where the concerns of the academy are projected out as the concerns of the world. And, you know, I think as Christians, we have to pause and ask that question, is this the only group with whom we should be in dialogue? Or do we need to be more active um, using Gutierrez's idea of seeking out the poor, non-persons, people from other parts of the world, maybe outside the traditional places of power, people who don't have access to the Western Academy, groups like that, and go out of our way intentionally to engage and dialogue with them so that our theology truly is robust and reflective of the church and not just the concerns of one specific highly educated culture living at one specific point in time in history. A good resource we've mentioned before, or at least a book that I, I enjoyed and appreciated their viewpoints, uh, Lukianoff and Haight, their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and they, they talk about this phenomenon on college campuses, the basically the near total homogeneity of thought now that exists on a lot of college campuses, and which is ironic seeing that the university was kind of this hallowed space for uh, centuries that embraced kind of a multitude of various viewpoints that then the skills of critical thinking through this dialogical process were employed to get at, to to mine out truth. And now the threat of bringing a, a viewpoint that varies from kind of almost a fundamentalist intellectual approach is very much present on a lot of college campuses today. And so if you want to do more reading on that, you can pick up that book. So my observation, maybe just intuiting this, when I look at a lot of the dialogue, um, again, more theological dialogue that's out there right now, and, and maybe even the conversations that seem to take on a lot of steam, there tends to be two different poles that are, in, that are talking to each other really consistently. One of them represents some form of conservative Christianity. And these days, a lot of that is either being conflated with conservative views politically or is being accused of being conflated with conservative views politically. But that represents one group. So I hear a lot, you know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of times people talk about, they'll use words like evangelical, and then they'll describe traits of evangelical. And almost always what they're referring to is Southern Baptist, you know, a very specific denomination 
very rarely would somebody use that term to describe a Brazilian Pentecostal, but actually numerically, the latter group is a lot more prominent than the former. And so even in the way that we label groups of people signals that we have something in mind. There's a very specific viewpoint that either people are defending or they are reacting to negatively. So that's maybe on one side. On the other side would be a, a type, and I'm, I'm specifically referring uh, maybe within the evangelical world, but another group that is, I wouldn't call them progressive like you see in secular progressive, but uh, maybe more so where it's a group of Christians that are trying to figure out a maximal amount of engagement with progressive secular culture. And so it doesn't mean that they're they're being entirely uncritical in what they are accepting and rejecting, but a lot of what they're trying to do is demonstrate the relevance of the Christian faith to a very powerful culture that seems to be moving in a different direction. And so I'll see this, you know, and again, I want to be very generous here. Uh, I'll see plenty of critique of, of Christians that are demonstrating the validity of Christianity. They're still critiquing, so it doesn't mean they're just believing everything or accepting everything, but a lot of the time is being spent, for example, defending a Christian theology of creation and the ecology, you know, so how do we steward the earth and creation care, which is a very wonderful topic and I think is an important topic to study, or how, how does Christianity speak to various forms of egalitarianism um, and, you know, where there's a very much an awareness of places in history where women have been mistreated, so what does the Christian faith speak to that? You for sure see this in all types of ethnic or race relations, things like that, you know, where uh, you have um, the concerns in the Western Academy, and then you have a lot of people adjusting to that. So in summary here, if you have those two groups, they're in dialogue with each other. And then both of them, you could go out further of people who have left behind the Christian faith, whether they are ex-Christian or they've always been secular. And then you have others that maybe are are um, very culturally Christian, but their primary goal is not the Christian faith, but instead represents some form of a political movement. And um, so you have those that go out even further, but these groups then end up being in dialogue with one another. So, you know, one group is attacking the other, and then they're attacking back. Maybe they're, some of them are peacemakers, they're finding points of agreement. Others of them are critiquing. And, and I've, I think in the last couple of years, especially, the critiques have grown more pronounced. What It's interesting, you know, when I read these authors, again, referring to people that you know, as best I can tell, um, really genuinely desire to submit to the Lordship of Christ, I can find a lot of agreement. You know, as I read the critiques of the other side, I'm like, yeah, you've got a good point there. And, you know, when they seek to find common ground, I'm like, yeah, you know, that, that's good. I can really appreciate that work. So it's, it's not to say that, um, that what anybody's doing is bad necessarily. And of course, I have things that I see that are written that I might disagree with. But I want to take a step back and say, is that the only conversation that we should be having right now to where we are reducing theological development to these two groups who are fighting with each other. Is there maybe a different way of looking at it, of acknowledging that and where some people are called to engage that conversation, to support them and get behind them? But even if that is someone's calling, and maybe even speaking of us in some ways, you know, as we kind of advocate at times mediating positions here, we have to take a step back and say there's a whole lot more dialogue for us to truly be a church that is in the world beyond just those two groups that represent the concerns of a very specific culture at a very specific time in history. And if we aren't careful, our theology is going to get very one-sided because we've limited it to one conversation. So that's part of why we spend so much time looking at church history. We, we want to be in dialogue with those who've gone before us and who aren't caught up in these very evocative conversations today. But then that's also why we need to seek out others for dialogue partners beyond just these groups. Yeah, so what I, what I think I hear you saying, Drew, is this accurate, that 
on a macro level, there's these big conversations. And somebody just pointed out today how often I say the word meta. So I'm, I'm going to talk about macro level for you scoffers out there. On a macro level, you have these big conversations that are going on in the academy and, and you know, people who are, who are thinking about these things consistently at a very highly academic level. But you're advocating for, yes, that is, those are very important conversations, but we also need a more thorough dialogical process at a grassroots level in terms of the formation and application of our theology. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. Part of this provoked in me, you know, is that quote from Gutierrez, but then few things I've read or heard recently, one is a prominent theologian who writes a lot about Pentecostalism, though uh, my understanding is that he's actually a Presbyterian, but his he grew up Pentecostal, and a lot of his work is Pentecostal. And I read this book, and I, I thought it was a good book. I mean, there's a lot, a lot in there that was helpful. But what concerned me was when I read the book, what seemed to me that this this person was doing was they were trying to make a case for how Pentecostalism can address all of the concerns of the Western Academy, you know, and so all the things I mentioned earlier, and, you know, they're taking the Pentecostal tradition and they're more or less saying it's relevant because it addresses the concerns that you care about. And in and of itself, that's not necessarily bad at demonstrating how Pentecostalism fits within the Western Academy is fine. However, I'm worried that we're not letting a tradition like that speak for itself. And so what if we let Pentecostalism speak out of what are the concerns of the Brazilian poor? What are the concerns of rural Africans that are coming to faith in droves? Like if they could just look at it and say, what is it about this tradition that they find so important and relevant to their context? And what if we developed a theology based around that, not just based about how it's going to fit within my seminary class in a way that shows that I belong at the grown-up table? And I'm using that, you know, just within the Pentecostal tradition. Obviously, that's where I spend a lot of my time. I think this would be relevant in a lot of other areas as well. That's just one example of where this might come into play. Let me kind of round the corner here on maybe how this might be relevant to us. First, I I think it's important for anyone, and especially anyone who's active in studying theology, and even more so if you're somebody that has a platform for speaking about it, whether you do that on social media or other areas— I think it's important for you to pause and acknowledge who are your dialogue partners. And this is just a good starting point. You know, so is your passion trying to demonstrate Christianity's relevance to a certain group of academics? And if so, that's fine. Please don't hear this message as condemnation. Um, We need people to do that. And so I pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, if that's part of your ministry, but just recognize that is one narrow group. And all that's all you have to do, because then what you can do is even as you develop that within your one group, you can also appreciate the work of other people who are seeking to do the exact same thing, but speaking to other cultures and trying to demonstrate the gospel's power in other contexts rather than just that one. So my concern is where we universalize the concerns of one group Uh, over and against the concerns of many others. And I think there's a long-term tendency of those who have the most power doing that at the expense of those who do not. And in our environment, that means if you you are in the Western academic system, you just have to recognize you represent the elite, the elitely educated and powerful of the world. Even if that wasn't how you felt like you grew up, it's still the reality of you have a, a voice within one of the most powerful institutions on the planet And that can be a very good thing, but you have to be careful and you have to be self-aware of not allowing the concerns of that group to be projected out onto the rest of the world that has a different set of concerns. And I'm going to take it a little bit deeper on this point. And, you know, maybe as I'm asking the question of who you're in dialogue with, a follow-up question, and, and I'll just be vulnerable on this, is why are you in dialogue? 
you know, I'll just speak for myself, is even as I seek to engage some of these topics and hopefully do so from a pure motivation of wanting to help people, I also have to recognize that lurking in the background is this desire to be respectable. And I think there's a, a reason why we're consistently drawn to be in dialogue with those who have the most power. Uh, because if we can get them to believe that what we're saying has validity, then that establishes us as a respectable movement. You know, if all of a sudden I can show, wow, you know, look at this, charismatic Christianity speaks to all the issues of our day in a way that has validity according to academic professors who think about these kind of things, and I can prove that I belong, then, then I am respectable. I am accepted amongst the elites of our culture. And, you know, that, that is a shadow mission that we're all tempted towards if we're not really careful. And I think that's why so much of the dialogue can get shifted around one group, because there is this desire within us to be respectable. And, you know, and again, uh, trying to be generous here, I, I think there is a need to demonstrate how the Christian faith can hold its own. And we talked about this last week with Aquinas, and you go back through all the church fathers and the patristics, a lot of what they were doing was defending the faith and demonstrating its relevance to Greek culture or to other other environments that they found themselves in. So that's not all a bad thing. And, and I'm, I, I want to be really nuanced here in how I explain this. But at the same time, I have to be careful. I have to be careful that my motivation is not to prove that I belong or that I fit in with culture, but is instead to bear witness to a risen king. That's great, Drew. I think the, the second part of, of our uh, encouragement or exhortation here would be to really evaluate who we are in dialogue with. And I think we would uh, suggest a few different categories to think through, different groups of people. One, and this this might seem kind of strange as a first point of when we're talking about dialogue, but to be in dialogue with dead theologians. And I know it sounds silly, you can't be in dialogue with somebody who's dead. But the point here is to be influenced by and to study those who have gone before us. And we say dead theologians because they can't be further influenced by culture. They have uh, fought the fight and they have finished the race men and women of the faith who've gone before us and have left a legacy. And so be readers, be those who consume content and thoughts of the giants of the faith throughout the centuries and the millennia, even uh, even going back to Thomas Aquinas last week, I was motivated and inspired to get into more of his, uh, of his work. Uh, secondly, as I read the scriptures, I find that I have to grapple with two things in particular, no matter my vocation, stage of life, uh, one of those is generally just God's heart for the nations, God's heart for all people. And Drew and I have had the privilege of traveling widely. Uh, but we recommend being in dialogue with with believers from around the world, get uh, different perspectives on certainly our faith, but also culture and different expressions of what it means to be human and a, and a follower of Jesus by engaging in dialogue with people from various backgrounds. And I would add in there, not just ethnic and national, but socioeconomic uh, as well. And that kind of brings to the third point here, and that's to be in dialogue with the poor. And I don't know that we're going to try to narrowly define that in this podcast. That could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But generally speaking, those who maybe do not have as much uh, social capital, as much financial power or social mobility as, as you do to engage with people in the lower rungs of society, not as a project, not but, but genuinely building relationships and getting into their world and, and developing empathy and finding out uh, what it's like to live life through a different set of eyes and walk in a different set of shoes. And I would also add in there, finding people who think differently 
differently on an intellectual and philosophical level and even political level. I think we have a massive deficit of the ability to engage in civil dialogue in America today, in the West more generally. And I've, I've benefited greatly, again, from engaging people who think very differently than I do and, and all the scriptures about seeking to understand before stating your own opinion and really coming in as a learner. And, and I find that a great starting point is just hearing somebody's story before we engage in philosophical ideas and, or, or thoughts on uh, you know, politics or economics or social issues. Hey, just tell me your story, because if you can find out where somebody's coming from, it frames the rest of their thoughts, and often, I find, develops a tremendous amount of compassion uh, in the process. One thing that I've noticed is that this approach to living life requires discipline and intentionality. This is not going to come naturally. It's really uncomfortable. There was somebody a little while back who was a very outspoken critic of uh, some of the things that I've been a part of, and and I pursued this individual, and we ended up getting lunch together. And I'll just—it was awkward, you know. It was um, it was uncomfortable. It was clear that we were coming from two different viewpoints. But I I gleaned a ton, and I I, I pray that this individual did as well as we just heard each other out and was able to ask questions. Uh, but it it was a departure from what w- what felt most natural and most comfortable for that particular day. Um, but again, I think it's a not just a worthwhile pursuit, but one that is is drastically needed today in the body of Christ, developing this skill of learning how to dialogue, and then the fruit of this cross-pollination of ideas and pursuing, especially among believers in particular, uh, pursuing oneness around the fixed point, Jesus himself, and learning how to deal with our differences from that starting point, from that foundation. Maybe in closing, Drew, a few, few comments on the heart posture that this requires. If we had to summarize all of this, you know, maybe the, the word would be humility. And you know, humility, humility, humility. I mean, this is the, the posture we just have to have. And I feel all the more so in a world where uh, it's very easy to hear loud voices, um, very opinionated voices who denounce everything, who are, are convinced that they are right. And hum- humility to me represents a very powerful antidote to that. And I found this, the more types of people with whom I'm in dialogue, and like you said, Mick, genuinely listening to them and representing their concerns, it takes the edge off of me because I realize there's just so much that I don't know. Typically where I get over the top opinionated, it's when I've allowed dialogue to become very one-sided with one other group of people that I'm reacting against, you know, this tribalistic mentality that's so prevalent. Um, I'll say for myself, I am very cautious around social media for this reason, because I think social media fosters this very one-sided form of dialogue, and it celebrates people that you know burst out quick snap opinions that lack any type of context or relationship, and that's what gets celebrated. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it becomes the goal of you know scoring intellectual appoint- points against your opponent, and you know all of that. I just I don't think it fosters healthy dialogue, or in the long run, fosters thinking that engages with complexity in a variety of different contexts. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be on it. I just say be careful if you are. And humility is going to carry the day on all of this. And what humility forces us to do as well is recognize our own limitations and um, recognize even how much our own preferences fit into things. Something I've observed over the years is Christians that are highly educated tend to congregate around the same preachers. And a lot of times they'll start looking down on preachers who, from their perspective, are less educated or maybe don't show or demonstrate you know, that they're up to date with the latest jargon or things, and, and you know they can be looked down upon um, as these kind of lesser types of preachers. But if you dig a little deeper, it's typically that latter category 
are the ones that are the best at reaching the average person. So on the one hand, you might have these preachers that do a really great job of reaching, you know, very highly educated Christians and speaking to their concerns. But then on the other hand, you might have a preacher out there that doesn't get any of those same accolades and might even occasionally be mocked, but they're very effective at reaching the poor. And so if I'm going to pause and take a step back, which one is right? Is it the one who has a great intellectual answer for everything, or is it the one who knows how to be in dialogue with the people who are in the most need? And so that alone, you know, maybe it's worth taking a pause and, and taking a step back and backing away from some of our judgments, even things that might make us uncomfortable, and just ask the question, what is it about their message that resonates with this group of people? And why does this group of people not show up and listen to the preacher that's really highly educated and always has the right word and latest, you know, latest research behind everything that they're saying? So hopefully you get my point with all of this. It's not to throw stones at any one group as much as to call all of us to humility and say that I might have preferences, I have concerns that I care about, things that I hope somebody can address, and issues that I really wrestle with. But I'm just one person, and I represent just one culture, and there's a lot more that's out there, and I need to be humble. And, and the power of what we talk about with all of this is that we don't need to figure everything out, that I don't think, I don't think you can. If I was going to frame this conversation theologically, it would be that humanity has limitations. I, as a person, have limitations in what I'm able to engage. And we, in dialogue together, whether it's you and I, Mick, whether it's the broader group that um, engages with this podcast, whether it's our church culture, whether it's even maybe perceived intellectual opponents, you know, all of us still represent just a small slice of, of humanity in general. And so even though we have dialogue, and hopefully through our dialogue, we can refine each other. And I love the example you gave of of even maybe maybe somebody I disagree with. Hopefully we can point each other towards Jesus in the midst of it all. And I trust the work of the Spirit in that. Even after all that is said and done, there's still so much more that we're not able to wrap our heads around. Other times, cultures, perspectives, and history. And so what that does is that leaves us in a posture of necessary dependence upon the Holy Spirit because I am incapable of figuring everything out. I'm incapable of somehow analyzing the whole world and coming to these definitive conclusions for all of history. I just can't. It's too big. It's too complicated. I can't wrap my head around it. But instead, if I can look to the Holy Spirit, who is the source of all truth and is guiding us into all truth, and do my part with humility, uh, representing my point in time in history, and as best I can, submitting to the Lordship of Christ and the leadership of the Spirit and engaging with the church, in history and around the world. Uh, I want to do my best with that, but then I can also take a step back and rest knowing that it's bigger than me and I am dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think if we can all fight for that, strive for that, that recognition, it can help us to, on the one hand, with curiosity and all, <laughs> leveraging the fullness of the gift God's given us to, to really press into the, the issues of our day, but we can also do that without taking ourselves too seriously and without universalizing everything and all these very intense hyperbolic statements that you see everywhere where we have this tribalistic mentality. And I, and I think instead we can engage these dialogues, but with a lot more joy and humility. And, you know, I think that alone will be a really powerful witness in our culture today. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in and for your ongoing listenership. And we don't do this often, but uh, we would ask that just unapologetically, if you've been benefited by this content, just think of one or two people that you could pass this along to. A lot of stuff out there that's not helpful. And if you've found that this podcast has been helpful, uh, we'd love to spread the word. So feel free to rate it, uh, give us an honest rating, feel free to comment and, uh, and share or subscribe. And we will catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.